there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. So does anybody know what today is as far as the church calendar with Easter next week? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, where children traditionally walk around with palms. And they don't know why, but it's an exciting thing, you know. Um, but yes, yeah, so we are, this is what kicks off our Holy Week. And I do want to mention it since, you know, we do have Easter next week. And what we had talked about previously is there's always this rush to get to, if it's Christmas season, you know, Advent, we would just want to get to the manger where Jesus is born, kind of missing that darker time before the light of the world comes in. And during Lent, the reason we celebrate or practice that season is because it's important for us to remember why Easter matters. You know, we go so quickly to the empty tomb. So in the same way, this day where Jesus is celebrated with um, all, all of these people, you know, and it, the scripture talks about that there's people who may not have, even some Greeks come in, you know, and they're placing these palm fronds down and it's this way of honoring and exalting Jesus who chooses to ride in on a donkey, kind of making a statement about what his authority will look like there. And everyone's saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's this praise, this this exaltation, this, ex, you know, uh, expression of the, the majesty of God, this acknowledgement of, of Jesus and his lordship, which lasts for a moment before everything gets pretty dark, right? Until, until Sunday. Well, that's when we celebrate it. Um, and so, you know, it kind of is it's tough for the disciples because even in the midst of Palm Sunday, when everyone seems to be on board with the Lordship of Jesus, everybody seems to come around and, and honor and praise Jesus as the Son of God. And yet Jesus keeps foretelling his death. And so the disciples are trying to deal with this picture they have of Lots of, of different people from different backgrounds coming and celebrating Jesus and the fact that he's saying he's also going to be murdered in a few days. How, how are these things possible? And so it's also something for us to consider, even though we know the end of the story. Um, it matters that we pay attention to what happens between Palm Sunday and when the empty tomb is revealed because we live a lot in that space, needing that reminder that Jesus has risen, that it's not just that Jesus was crucified, but also that Jesus lives and intercedes on our behalf and continues to be that um, divine um, gift to us every single day, continuing to live with us. So, um, but I also just was thinking about this morning how Palm Sunday ties into, you know, because I'm driving and I'm like, why didn't I, Preach Palm Sunday, like that is such an easy sermon anyway. Why wouldn't we just do that? No, we want to be complicated and <laughs> do a, a series in the midst of Holy Week, right? But, you know, we're looking at the words of Jesus. We remember that for, for anybody who's not familiar with the text, maybe you weren't with us last week or it's a new parable to you. Jesus is giving us a parable in response to some religious leaders, the Pharisees, who were not happy with the fact that he was eating or communing, fellowshipping with sinners, with these tax collectors. So 
the mumbling, the grumbling, the complaining. Maybe Jesus doesn't know that they're sinners. Uh, maybe he's not aware that he's hanging out with the wrong crowd. And so Jesus tells these three parables to explain why he's made the very distinct choice that he's made. So one is he's explaining to the Pharisees, I am about the repentance and the coming home of every single person in the world. And we remember that even from Abraham, you know, our ancestors of faith, that it was never just about Abraham being blessed, but it was, I'm blessing you so that you'll be a blessing. There has always been this image of God's people being the conduit of blessing to everybody else. So then you find how there's this stagnant, you know, understanding among the religious leaders that blessing that happens is because I'm super spiritually mature and there's no pouring out to other people. It's just collected for me and so I can look good. And so Jesus is constantly speaking against that, that it's not about the appearance of being holy, that it's understanding the humility that comes from being called to love the world. So Jesus speaks about this uh, complaint that the Pharisees have and says that there are um, people who have lost things and they struggle and strive and do not stop until they find. So there's a man who has a hundred sheep and one goes missing. He leaves the 99 to find the one. When he finds the one, he celebrates and invites everyone else into celebration because what was lost is now found. There's the woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one. She doesn't stop sweeping. She lights a lamp. She's round the clock looking. And then when she finds it, she invites everyone to celebrate with her because that which was lost is now found. And then the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, where, it, you know, you guys could probably do a, a better summary than me. But there are two sons and the younger son goes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. And so the father obliges and the son then leaves the family, goes off to a foreign country, very recklessly spends all of the inheritance, finds himself alone, doesn't have options. So goes and hires himself out to a foreigner and works as a slave feeding the pigs. He's starving. And so he just wants to be fed with whatever the pigs are eating. He realizes that when he was with his father, when he was home, he had everything that was available to his father and decides he's going to go back. But he plans his speech, his uh, coming back home speech with a lot of uh, groveling and I know I messed up and I've sinned against heaven and you and so I wanna come back as a servant. I know I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father, as he sees him coming from far off, goes out to him and embraces him, runs to him, very undignified practice, which is not uncommon in scripture, where you see someone going against whatever, you know, there's not a lot of piety when you see people really experiencing the love of God. <laughs> it's kind of like any sense of being dignified goes off the table and we really get to have that visceral reaction to being loved and loving. And so he runs toward his son, embraces him, and the younger son starts his speech, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts his speech and says, we are celebrating, go kill the fatted calf. It's gonna be, we're gonna party like it's 1999. And, <laughs> and uh, brings a rope, puts on Adam, puts his ring on him. And then the father goes out to the older son, right? Who's been working in the fields. And the older son is mad because he's heard about the party. And he says to his father, um, I have worked for you all these years, 
So he had seen himself as servant or slave. And he's like, and then this son of yours comes home. You throw a party for him and you've never even given me a goat. So apparently, you know, goats are like B team or something. <laughs> not. Um, and so the father says to him, I'm, I'm reaching out to bring you in to celebrate because this brother of yours was lost and now is found. So this message of the lost and found is at the heart of the gospel, that Jesus did not just come to, um, to bring the kingdom as if it were an end in itself, but because it was part of this, this finding of people, this making things the way they were intended to be. So miracles were not like a magic trick, you know, like, hey, I'm proving I'm God. It was a way of making things right. So blind people see, um, people who can't walk have the ability to, people who are raised from the dead. It's almost as if Jesus is coming into this broken down house of the world and setting things up the way they were meant to be. So the marginalized and the poor all of a sudden belong. The people who are mourning experience comfort. Those who are outside are brought in. Jesus is making the world as God intended it to be. So when we see Jesus putting this emphasis on meeting with sinners or outsiders, then we understand that that's a part of what it means to make the world as God meant it to be. When we say we are on this same mission, then we pay attention to what Jesus values. So the Pharisees are criticizing the fact that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And they grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That reception. I don't know if you've paid attention to that word. So Jesus receives sinners, right? It's not just acknowledges them in like a politician way where you like hold a baby because it's a photo opportunity or you shake somebody's hand because you're supposed to. There's that kind of reception, which is pretty formal and obligatory. And then there's what Jesus does. And and just Jesus em embraces people, who, whether or not they even necessarily want to be embraced. But receives is not just a momentary meeting or encounter. Receives is the way in which Jesus sees and approaches and holds people. I'm not receiving you in this specific moment, although that's happening and we're eating together. But this is a way in which I see you. And this is a way in which you can identify yourself as one who has been received by me. So in, in the story of the parable of the prodigal son, if we keep in mind that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, is responding to their concern that he is receiving sinners and tax collectors, then it helps us know maybe an angle on this story, how Perhaps the Pharisees are, who would you guess the Pharisees might be in this story? The older son, right? Okay, the one who has worked as a servant, who understands his role in the family as one who just works and works and works and works for the father. And we talked about last week how the younger son went off and the older son went off. And neither of them were very comfortable coming into the family as son. The younger son felt like he didn't deserve it. And the older son felt like this is what it meant was to be a workhorse and to, you know, if we were to put it in our terms, to earn spiritual favor. I know that I belong to this family because of how hard I work for God versus I belong 
because this is what God says, that I have been received in the same way, right? And maybe we've all caught ourselves in both places. You know, we might see ourselves at different times as the younger and other times as the older. But he's speaking to the Pharisees who would naturally put themselves in the position of the older son who perhaps hadn't done the things the younger son did. So, so as far as we know, the older son did not demand his inheritance. Okay? He didn't leave and go to a foreign country. He didn't squander it with reckless living and prostitutes. All right? He didn't hire himself out as a slave feeding pigs, which is a huge no-no in the Jewish community. All right? Pigs are gross. Okay? And not just like gross, but like legally and religiously gross. Okay? So not just, I don't prefer, right? Um, they're like the porta potty. Oh, you guys might like porta potties. I shouldn't make that association. But um, <laughs> it's like your favorite thing. It's a challenge. There were some. You know how people take pictures around blue bonnets. So I, my kids and I, kind of think it's weird. And I'm not from Texas, but so whenever we see a few blue bonnets in a random place, like it's not a field. But we have a lot of people in, in Waco who take pictures on the side of the highway, where there's like, I don't know, people are going like 85 miles yeah. an hour. And then you go to a field where there's like bees and like dogs have been there and you put your kids there and they're like <laughs> used to wear and take a picture. So yesterday we were on a walk and there were like just little patches, like three blue bonnets here, four blue bonnets here. And so my kids went over to some that were by a porta potty and so we took a picture like it was a family picture. <laughs> and there's like four blue bonnets. They're like <coughs> crouched by it. <laughs> you can judge me. That's fine. But as far as we know, the, um, the, the older son had not done those things and felt that he was in a, you know, in a morally different situation, that he had not done any wrong. And even though, so this was his argument, you give this son who's squandered everything on prostitutes, is what he says, who knows if it's an exaggeration, okay? It's a parable, so, you know, we'll go with it. And yet he's like, but I haven't done anything wrong. So that then expresses what? His basis for what gives you the ability to be celebrated and loved and where you shouldn't be celebrated and loved. It's not about belonging. It's not about place in the family. It's about behavior. And this isn't far off. I, I mean, I, I think maybe we have an understanding of grace, but a lot of our society, if not us at times, operate on the assumption that we are a behaviorally based society, right? That behavior helps to communicate your value, which then leads to your acceptance or lovability, right? So it's not as if, oh, he's so stupid for thinking that behavior matters. Behavior does matter, it does matter. If it doesn't matter, then, you know, then there's no point for Jesus to die and be resurrected, okay? Uh, because we could all earn our way into whatever holy state we wanted, right? But it does matter how we behave. And so the older son is communicating what possibly the Pharisees thought, which is that behavior um, decides your value, your lovability, and your acceptance in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus comes and establishes and, uh, you know, the inaugural movement of the kingdom of God, which is coming but has also come, it's the extension of God's heart that says, it's, it's not about what you do or who deserves. It's about the fact that Jesus has come. And that changes everything. 
But I can see the older son, his, his perception and how frustrating this would be if you buy into the behavior belief. You know, if we take a second and think about if we were people who felt like we could earn God's favor or um, felt that value came from upright living, right? You've spent your whole life trying to be good. You spent your whole life trying to be good. And then someone says, oh, actually, that's not how the system works. I mean, that that makes me mad, you know, but I've been told or I somehow understood that I had to do things right in order to be accepted. And you're telling me that this guy who did nothing right and actively rebelled and disrespected you, that he somehow accepted and celebrated? I mean, I, I feel like that would make me mad. But he murdered six million people. Why, when he comes home, is he celebrated? But, you know, we may not see, you know, spending your inheritance as this huge deal, but there's other things, I think, that can make us mad. Why does this person get to marginalize a group of people and they're still apart? Why does this person over here get to have these crazy political views that I feel like are dangerous and yet they're apart? Why do these people who don't believe women can, you know, stand up in church, they get to be apart? You know, we all have people that we think are not doing what they need to be doing in order to be accepted, right? I think some of us who might consider ourselves more open-minded, we don't think the closed-minded people should be in. Or, you know, there's, there's always, there's always people we have a, are, are uncomfortable with them being included in the love of God, right? So what's important about the younger son and his transition is found in this verse. Let's see what it says in, in this translation here. So in Luke 15, after the younger son is starving and wants to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, it says this, no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. We don't know why the younger son took off. We don't. You don't have to assume that there was some kind of family conflict or dysfunction in the family or, you know, maybe he was 18 and he felt like it was time to embark on his own. Maybe it was a, you know, a developmental thing where it was time for him to express his autonomy or, you know, just some kind of rebellion, which is always healthy. Um, no, I'm serious. You know, rebellion is definitely a part of establishing identity. However, we just know that he left. And in this move away from home, he disconnected from who he was and what he had come from. And he, he maybe was looking for other things to give him that security, that um, sense of value, that identity. Who am I? What does it mean for me to be alive in this world? Where's my purpose? Like looking to these other things in order to give him that. And so it's not just that he didn't get food from anybody, but also he didn't get anything. Nobody gave him anything. All of these avenues, whether it's pleasure or excitement or change or, you know, an, a new job or relationships, all these types of things, all of the things that he had sought to find purpose and love and identity gave him nothing, right? So there's a few things that happen when we find ourselves in that place, which I think we all do, um, whether it's our own 
uh, effort for strict obedience or high morality, whatever we are trying to get to give us some kind of sense of purpose, love, belonging, there comes a point where we realize it's not giving us anything. So we either shut down, we double down our efforts to try to get from those things what we need. Like this time it's going to work. You know, if I just continue up, it gave it to me one time, I felt it, and so I'm just going to go after it again. Or we realize it's not working. It's not working, so let's try something different. Definition of an insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, right? So in verse 17, the younger son, when he came to himself, this translation says, when he came to his senses. But I like the, the translation, when he came to himself. It was when the younger son remembered who he was, right? All right. He comes to this point where he sees that he has not been living in a way that aligns with who he really is. He comes to that understanding, whether it's to his senses or just almost kind of like looks in the mirror for the first time. You ever had those moments where you feel really angst-ridden and you're disconnected from who you are, things just feel wonky. It could be off in such a way that you feel like you're deep in a dark hole and don't know how to get out, or it could be as casual as I, I just feel off and disconnected. Either way, there comes that point where you look in the mirror and you remember again. You see, you know this is not how you're made to be. You're holding on to that anger and resentment and it's starting to eat away at you and you remember this is not who you are. And at that point, we have the option to walk away or when we come to our senses, to turn back. So when Jesus talks about the celebration that happens, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So that's the message. There's joy, there's celebration over, over the repentance of one. And it's not as if one is more important than 99. It's that turning matters. That Jesus knows it's a huge effort. That it's not just a casual but turning to coming to your senses, coming to yourself, realizing again who you are is not easy, especially in a world where we're encouraged to keep doing the things we're doing. And if you're doing it wrong, just hide it. If you're not happy, you know, you don't have to figure out how to get happy. You can just hide the fact that you're not happy. There's lots of other options than the very difficult, you know, kind of walk back, right? Admitting it didn't work out, or that I made bad decisions. We don't like to use the word sin, or we don't like to use it in the way that it's intended to be used. I was in a show last night, which is why I have red lipstick that I can't get off, and I woke up this morning, and I'm like, looks like I was at a crazy party last night. But um, during the show, when I was backstage, I was just asking everybody, <laughs> In, in the theater community, which is always fun. It's like, what, what's your definition of sin? <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. They, I didn't think it was weird at the time. They're like, I don't know how I did on that song. And I was like, I thought it was great. So what do you feel like sin is? <laughs> and it was wonderful because I feel like there's, you know, um, everything from it's things that are motivated by selfishness or mistakes that we make or character flaws or 
uh, things that are harmful to ourselves or other people. And we all have an idea of sin, but I think it can be hard when we're always focused on grace. And again, it's that moving too quickly to the empty tomb. And I do this a lot. You guys know I love to preach about grace. But if sin, if, if um, missing the mark, which, which it is, in, um, and that's in the actual Greek translation, is to miss the mark, um, not to hit in the way we were supposed to um, aim. And um, I think in the simplest way, it's not being who we were made to be as people who love and are loved. But if sin isn't real, then neither is grace, right? If the younger son hadn't actually been wrong and done things that were harmful to himself and other people, then there would be no need for the father to receive him back. If we hadn't ever really left home or done things that are unloving, then what is this celebration? What are we going back to if it doesn't matter? It matters very, very much how we act. We just want to shift the starting point to be the love of a father who comes out to us, right? Because our failure is real. I cannot pretend that when I act unloving, it doesn't hurt people. That really cheapens the pain of the people that I hurt. It is not about, you know, necessarily like right or wrong, good or bad. It is about not being a person who loves and allows God to love me and extends that love to the world. We have been created to be children who experience that love and then offer it out to the people around us. So I do want us to acknowledge that the younger son was not doing what he needed to do and was not being who he was. And that's why this text gives us a clear identity, a clear idea of identity, who you are, because the way you view yourself affects everything. It affects the way you talk to people. It affects the way you make decisions. It affects the way you parent. It affects the way that you text. I mean, surf the internet. I mean, everything. Do people say surf the internet anymore? No. Yes, they do, guys. They say search it up. Are you sure? Okay. Search it up for me. Google is now, uh, it's now in the dictionary. Isn't that crazy? Oh, it's, we're done with that. No, our generation says it. Oh, bless my heart. I know. Someone was like, are you a millennial or a baby boomer? And I was like, you're dead to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> it, but it does. It affects everything, right? And so the brave move here is the, is the coming to himself, is the turning toward. And so that's, that's what repentance is. And Jesus is talking about there be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents then what that repent language is, is the turning toward. We're turning in a different direction. And so this is what the younger son does. You know, physically turns into a di different direction. Mentally turns into a different direction. Emotionally, spiritually goes in a different direction and is heading back toward who he is. Right? So it's not necessarily some kind of um, uncharted territory as much as a return back to what it is to be the loved son. I don't know if he lived as a loved son before. We're not told that. We're, we're just in the same way, we're not told if the older son ever goes home. Maybe the older son, repentance would just look like going into the house, you know? Had he ever experienced that? Doesn't sound like it from all the years that he spent living as a servant, right? 
But there's this turning toward home, this turning toward God, this turning toward the love of a father that is always um, recklessly for us and willing to love and embrace us. And it, and it comes with coming to ourselves. So is it then <clears throat> when Jesus says to the Pharisees, here's the deal. This one sheep that repents, which I don't know how a sheep repents. It's like, sorry, I got a little crazy and wanted to black market sell my wool, but I decided to come back <laughs> to the flock. Um, and, and I love that. Like I told you last week, my friend who pointed out that the sheep and the coin don't ever repent. Yeah. <laughs> and yet there's this, this effort, you know, representing the heart of God that never, ever, ever, ever gives up. Like it's never stops looking, never stops pursuing, never stops going after us to bring us back to who we were made to be. You were created out of the love and goodness of God, and that was never rescinded, ever. It was never taken back. Not after the fall, not after the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you still are the loved person of God. That is your true core identity. Other things you may have done or experienced may describe your story, but they can't define it, right? And so for the younger son, he had now had experiences that might describe his recent past, might describe his story, but they could not define his story. And so the bravest and most important thing he could do was come back to himself, not who he used to be or where he used to live, but who he actually is deep inside. Because that's what was more true than the things that he had done, than the ways in which he had acted unlovingly or harmfully toward himself or his family. The truest thing was coming back to who he was, not who he could be, but his core identity as one who belongs with God. One who is worthy of being embraced by the Father, not because of his own ability to earn that love, but because there is a Father who waits and looks and comes after us and brings us in and celebrates. So there's one sinner, there's 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So is it that Jesus is saying the Pharisees don't need repentance? Were they already headed in the right direction? If we think of repentance as a turning toward, right? Or could it be they weren't aware of that? I don't know that <laughs> Jesus is saying 99 people who don't need repentance as much as 99 people who aren't willing to look reality in the face, to realize that their actions are also not lining up with who they are as loved people of God. That it's not that these people don't need it as much as they're not willing to look in the mirror. They're not willing to acknowledge the fact that there are times, moments, or lifestyle choices in which they are not living as loved people of God. Because if they are standing in that seat of criticism and judgment, which is God's alone, right? Then they aren't being who they are as loved people of God, right? So then there's no way that they're not in need of repentance. Maybe it's that they thought they just 
did it once, you know. Once they went through a certain process, there was no more need for repentance. But in the same way that we serve, believe in a creative God who created the world and creates every single day, that is always bringing in new beginnings, and we believe in this God who gives grace every day, then that means we're also people who need to turn back in that direction. Which is great, it's a living and active relationship. I get to choose every day how I get to parent my kids. I choose to love. It's not a choice I made when I got pregnant, when I, when I adopted Owen. It's a choice I make every day. Repentance is something we get to do as part of our connection with God. And sometimes the repentance, the turning toward means letting ourselves be loved. I'm not in need of repentance means that I don't recognize my need for this love of God the sustaining love of God. Dallas Willard says that sometimes the longer that we have been connected to God, we think we need less grace. We've learned how to operate, I don't think Priuses were there, but like a Prius, okay? You know, I don't need as much grace because I know Jesus and I'm living in a way that, and I, I don't even know that I'm mocking people. They probably are living better than me. But like, you know, kind of like this, you know, I've kind of X'd out a lot of the, the bigger what people would consider sins, you know. Um, but the more that we know God, the more that we've been in relationship with, the Jesus, with Jesus, the more that we should understand our huge need for grace, that we do not have the resources we need in order to love the people around us. I do not want to be a person who loves other people with my limited love. That means I need to turn toward a God who is willing to give this unending love to the people around me, right? I have natural affection. Maybe that's one of the gifts of being in connection with God for a while, is that my heart starts to uh, turn into the heart of God. I'm beginning to see people the way God sees them. I still have to have my pers uh, God's perspective if I want to love people the way God loves them. It's a turning toward. It's a uh, coming back to the reality of who I am. So we, the, the longer, the more that we know God, should be burning through grace like a 747. There should be no Prius at all. We should be taking it in in large amounts because we understand that the heart of God is bigger than anything that we can conjure up on our own, no matter how holy and practiced we are, no matter how well we know scripture, no matter how good we are, it is not within our power to love the way God loves, unless God loves through us. We are participating in the life of God. The Spirit is with us, giving us perspective and words and kindness where we don't have it on our own. But if I'm doing okay, then I don't need repentance. Maybe that's what Jesus is speaking to. I don't know if it's criticism as much as there's the option for you to think things are going okay. Or there's this coming home and being celebrated and experiencing what it is to be who you are as the loved one of God, you know? Maybe it's just cutting our losses and living on the periphery of God's love. That, that doesn't mean you're outside necessarily. I think that God is for people who don't ever want to come in but instead religiously want to stand on the outside and judge. And, and I've been there and sometimes I am there, probably will be there later today. But I want to be a person who comes in 
It's not about who's in or out. It's about how wide the circle is. Jesus is not saying the Pharisees are out <laughs> as much as you have no idea the breadth and depth of the love of God. And if you come in, you can't help but be transformed. And being transformed is what most connects us to who we are, right? This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.